Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am so excited about today's guest. We're going to be talking about motherhood on Mother's Day. How cool is that? Lisa Marciano is a clinical social worker, a certified Jungian psychoanalyst, a co-host of the popular podcast, The Jungian Life, which was just mentioned in New York Times. She's a mother of two teens and the author of the forthcoming book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself. Lisa, welcome to We Earth Radio. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Lovely to have you here. And I want to start out saying, how did you go from someone who didn't want to ever have children and had a life in a completely different world to being a Jungian analyst and a mother of two? Tell us well, your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, those two things happened somewhat in tandem. So let's see. Well, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, in, in that I didn't want kids when I was in my teens or most of my 20s. I, I think in my experience, many women of my age, you know, sort of had big career plans and, oh, we're not going to have kids. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't one of those women who was, you know, dreaming of getting pregnant or feeling the clock ticking or anything like that. When I was in my twenties, I, I am ashamed to admit that I remember being at a party in Washington, DC. I must've been about 24 and I was very, um, full of myself and I was at a party with all kinds of interesting people. And I was talking to a woman and I said, you know, because this is what you say when you're at a party in Washington, D.C. I said, oh, what do you do? And she said, I'm a stay at home mom. And I uh, pretty quickly found a reason to um, refresh my drink. And I didn't go back to the conversation because I thought, well, she's not interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like we look back and think, oh, gosh. Um, so I really, it was not in my awareness. I was working in the field of international humanitarian assistance. It was really exciting. It was, um, I felt very important. And then as I got close to 30, something started shifting. And I found myself um, uh, feeling like I wanted something with more depth, being called to something. And, and around the same time, I started thinking, huh, you know, what would it be like to have kids? And, and so between about 28 and 32, my priorities had really shifted. And I was going back and pursuing the path of becoming an analyst. And eventually, uh, I had kids. Mm. So let's, uh, let's start at the beginning of having kids. Mm -hmm. So you're pregnant. I know yes. I went through pregnant with my wife. It was the worst time. It almost, 
It destroyed our relationship. It was horrible. What was horrible about it? She was crying every day on the floor and upset about her body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was it was just the person who was my my hip, you know, my, you know, connected at the hip Mm -hmm. uh, became someone I didn't know. And I had lost my mother early on and all the abandonment issues came up. Mm. You know, I had a lot of early trauma, so you know, went from this incredible relationship where we did everything together to, yeah, it was hard. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of men feel that sense of abandonment. So, you know, how, how was that for you? And what's your sense of that as an ally? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's definitely true. And, and there is actually research on that, you know, that men can feel very um, mispl- um, replaced, misplaced, uh, when their wife gets pregnant, suddenly the whole center of gravity in the relationship has really shifted. And it's now, you know, it used to be kind of this dyad, these two people. And now suddenly everything's about the pregnancy and everything's about the baby. And that's what everyone's thinking about and talking about. And men can feel very, um, you know, just, just sort of extraneous at that point. Like, you know, you did your job, you were there at the beginning. (laughs) Now there's not much for you to do. Um, So that can be very difficult on men. And I think in terms of your wife's experience, you know, I mean, I've worked with a lot of women in my practice through the years, and many of whom have been pregnant or are recalling their time pregnant. And of course, I've been pregnant myself twice. It is simply not true that most women find pregnancy euphoric that i mean i'm sure some women do i don't know that i've ever met one it certainly <laughs> was difficult for me i mine came in the form of anxiety mm-hmm. i just ruminated all the time about um specifically when i was pregnant with my daughter i was so worried about uh you know kind of how this was going to affect my career and what that was going to look like and then when when I was pregnant with my second child, I was worried about that again, but then also worried about what it was going to be, you know, how, how having a baby was going to disrupt my relationship with my older child. Mm-hmm. So, and I couldn't help it. I would say to myself, you know, this is, I'm pregnant. I should be enjoying this. I'm only going to be pregnant a couple of times. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. I, I just, my brain would just cycle on these ruminative thoughts. And I just think that's, that's how it is. And, you know, it, 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 we don't do ourselves any favors by setting up these grandiose expectations about how that experience is going to be. All those shoulds, how I right, should be. Right. You know, and, and, and so I just try to normalize it when women come to me and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm so anxious or I'm, I'm so sad or whatever, all this stuff is coming up. I thought I'd be so happy, you know, unless it's a really extreme experience. I just try to say, yeah, you know, that's actually normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about, so you had your first child was, was a girl, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then how old was she when you had your second? She was exactly two. They were like exactly a week two. apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just hard. Tell us, yeah, tell us about that experience and, and how 
you know, probably mothers can really relate to uh, the chaos and the twos and the, and then the, you know, sometimes the two-year-old is really upset that the newborn is going to come. And that's a whole journey there. Yes, it is. I remember reading somewhere or someone saying that having one child is a hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't kind of get real until you have two. No, it, you know, it was so, it was so, f- um, having, having my daughter for me personally, and I think everyone's experience is really different, but for me, being the mother to this beautiful little baby. And, and my daughter, by the way, was objectively the most beautiful baby ever in the history of humanity. Just thought you'd <laughs> want to know that. Um, it was just, it was just glorious. You know, I, I, I would, I'll sometimes say to people, you know, it's not hard to take care of a baby. It's hard to take care of a baby and do anything else. Mm. So I just really let myself not do anything else. I just took care of her. And it was great. But, you know, you can't do that anymore when you have a baby and a toddler. So that was really difficult for me. And that's actually the genesis of the book. Because um, whereas, you know, when, when, my, when it was just me and my daughter and she was upset, I could just focus on her. I could just comfort her. And, and that was a lovely feeling. When my son came along and my son was, you know, colicky or crying, I couldn't really focus on him because I had a toddler who was about to climb up on a counter and maybe get hurt or she needed to go potty or whatever. So it just, I just felt like I was never good enough. I couldn't meet her needs. I couldn't meet his needs. And, and I found myself kind of getting, you know, I want to say sort of sucked in the mire. I didn't have any time to myself. You know, another lovely thing about having a baby is you can just be in your own thoughts all the time. You can sit and read while you nurse. Once they're toddlers, they talk and they want you to talk to them. So, you know, the thinking time goes out the window, the time to read goes out the window. So I was really feeling very depleted. And uh, I remember one day it was a really cold day in December and it was like 8.30 in the morning and we'd already been awake for hours because my kids got up so early and I was like, well, what do I do now? So I, I just strapped them into the double stroller and bundled everyone up and took us outside for a walk. And it was really difficult pushing the stroller because those strollers are so heavy and it was getting caught on the tree roots. And I just thought, you know, it's bitter cold. And I just, I, I found myself thinking, God, everything about being a mother is so hard. And then the next thought that came was, yes, and I'm learning so much about myself as a result. And that felt like a big, big idea. And at this point, I was in Jungian training. And Jung has this idea of individuation, by which he means the development of the personality, which takes place over the course of a lifetime. And the goal of individuation is not perfection, it's wholeness, which means that we integrate more and more of ourselves. So what I realized on that cold December walk is that this really difficult thing that I was faced with, this challenge was in fact a tremendous individuation opportunity. And I was quite captivated by that idea. And I wanted to read that book. I wanted to read a book about how motherhood could be an opportunity for this psychological growth process that Jung called individuation. So when the kids eventually napped later that day, I scoured the internet for that book. And I realized 
that book didn't exist. And that's when I, that's when I started thinking, well, maybe I'm going to write something about that someday. Mm. Now you were just uh, becoming a Jungian analyst studying mm-hmm. psychology. I think if I knew what I knew now about adaptation styles and early development, I'd have been more paranoid and upset, making sure I was always there to make contact and not be avoidant and, you know, certainly not terrorize in any way and any outside. I think I'd be, as a, if I were a mother or a father, I would be really paranoid about making a mistake. Well, um, I was already a practicing psychotherapist at this point. And so I had had that fear placed in me that if I were not a Winnicottian good enough mother, (laughs) that my kids would develop all kinds of horrible pathologies. But the wonderful thing about Jungian thought is that it encourages us to confront, integrate, make friends with all aspects of ourselves. And, you know, Uh, One of the quotes that I use in the book that I I just absolutely love is this quote from the novelist Faye Weldon. She says, the best thing about not having children is that you can go on thinking that you're a good person. (laughs) And and, and it's so true. I never realized how, how hateful, nasty, rageful I could be until I had kids. And I think that's a pretty common experience. Mm that that we really will meet the very worst of ourselves when we parent. And I certainly did. I, and I talk about some of those instances in the book because I think it's important to be honest about them. You know, people kind of tend to whitewash those, those times when you absolutely lost it on your kid. You know, it's like we either whitewash and don't mention it or we make a joke out of it. So I tried to talk about that really honestly in the book, but um I have this wonderful framework for understanding that, you know, Jung talks about the shadow, those parts of ourselves that we would rather not know. And as we are mothering, we will certainly meet the shadow repeatedly, whether, whether we have a young child or uh, that's something that comes a lot up a lot in the teen years too. Our teenager may be disappointing us. We may feel embarrassed. We may feel ashamed of our kid. We may see our least likable qualities in our child. And these are all opportunities to confront and integrate our shadow, those parts of ourselves that we would, we, we wish we weren't. And, and so, although it was certainly painful for me to, to, for me to see how, again, rageful and out of control, for example, I could be with my kids. I also had this wonderful Jungian framework where saying, okay, there it is. There's my shadow. Yeah. I need to, I need to, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to learn more about that part of myself. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question about the Jungian therapeutic approach, and that is in bringing these unconscious elements of the psyche, in other words, the, the shadow into awareness and working to discover what's behind that, what's the meaning, what's the experience, and and how can that help us to avoid suffering that would otherwise be there because of the suppressed feelings. And what I was wondering about was, I'm a somatic person, you know, 
What about the body? I didn't, I didn't, what little I know about, and I don't know a great deal, but there seems to be an avoidance of in the body, you know, that, that going into the body and experiencing those frozen parts. Now we talk about trauma as unintegrated experiences from the past. How does the Jungian approach, especially in those early years, um, deal with the body? Mm-hmm. Um, Jung wrote a lot about the body, actually. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot about it. And, and I think he wrote about it uh, with an just incredible um, uh, insight and, and about the relationship with the body. You know, one of the things that he says repeatedly is that most of our troubles come from being cut off from the instincts. And of course, instincts are very embodied. And, you know, he did talk, you know, mentioning the shadow. He, he said that the shadow, is, the body is the shadow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what we don't want to know about. It is, um, you know, considered shameful or dirty, but that's where the gold is. That's where the instincts are. That's where the, there's this kind of natural wisdom in the body. And Jung very much recognized that. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't get into this in the book too much, but of course, mothering is an incredibly embodied experience, and it does have the ability to reconnect us with our instincts. I mean, I really do think that there's something to the truism that, that mothers have a kind of instinctual knowing about their kid. I mean, it even just comes up in, in this incredible thing that happens if you're nursing you know, when your baby starts to cry, your milk, your milk lets down. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think for me, I'd, I'd sort of always lived the life of the mind. And uh, when that happened, I was like, wow, you know, I guess I'm a mammal. You know, look at that. My body is just doing this thing, this kind of incredible thing. So, so it is an opportunity to um, gain a new awareness of our instinctual life, to appreciate that part of our lives. I think in other ways too, you know, we do sometimes just kind of know, we just know something's wrong with our kid or we have a strong sense that, um, that something's wrong or that we need to do something that certainly happened to me. And I do talk about that in the book as well. So it's an opportunity to reconnect with the body and the instinctual life. I like that you say reconnect with the body because I grew up in the corporate world where I uh, really found out how deeply disembodied and uh, un- disconnected from our emotions that most of us are, not yeah. only in the corporate world, in the world in general. Sure. I mean, it's such an important place to be able to pick up on the clues out, you know, the, the external clues, but also the interoception, being able to feel that inner experience Mm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and you know especially if you have two you you're going to have conflict (laughs) not so much as one i like your the quote you said but with two you're going to have bashing over the head and fighting and conflict talk about dealing with that also from a developmental standpoint but as a personal growth opportunity as a mother well, certainly that is one of the harder things, is, or at least it was for me, is dealing with um, the sibling conflict. You know, that, that is a terribly unpleasant part of parenting. And I think, you know, it, 
Look, it's one of the things that brings up really strong feelings. And that is a hallmark of the parenting experience is really, really big emotions. And whether it's joy or anger or sorrow or outrage or shame, any, any of these big emotions. And it's when we feel big emotions that we kind of cook, you know, that's, that's when the heat is turned up a little bit on the personality and superfluous stuff kind of gets burned away. And we're, we're forced to confront aspects of ourselves that we maybe didn't even know about before. So, you know, I, I think it's just, it's just part of, of this reality that it's, it's difficult. And because it's difficult, it is a growth opportunity. Yeah. It tests you. You have to do things and manage things, manage feelings, manage uh, experiences that you, you wouldn't have otherwise. It's if you want to get to know yourself, being a parent is a pretty good way to do it. <laughs> I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jungian analyst Lisa Marciano, and she has a new book coming out called Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself.
from the work I do and the people I talk to, there seems to be, particularly in the Western world, this feeling of being broken and needing to be fixed. Hmm. Take all these different courses to fix something. And yet all of these things that you're talking about are the natural unfolding uh, of developing ourselves both in relationship to the world and others, but also in relationship to our, to ourselves. So talk about navigating that. Oh, I like that you asked that question. You know, one of Jung's, I think, most beautiful ideas is that the psyche is a self-regulating system and that the psyche is always unfolding toward wholeness. So it's just a natural process to grow toward wholeness and if we get stuck, the psyche is going to do something to try to regulate. So it's just like if you have a if you're sick, you'll run a fever, and that's your body's reaction, your body's response to try to address the illness. So if we're stuck somewhere, we might feel depressed. Depression isn't really necessarily a problem in this way of thinking about it, because it's the psyche's attempt to change the flow of energy or to get our attention or to set us on another course. And what, what, I, what I really um, love about that sense is there's this uh, way that we can trust. We can trust life. Mm -hmm. We can trust that things are unfolding as they should. And this can be a very important perspective to have as we're mothering. Because like you said, a lot of people think, oh, I'm broken. Or even as you alluded to before, I have to do this perfectly. If I don't do it perfectly, I'm going to damage my children. But with if we really integrate a Jungian frame, what we see is that we are being, um, I want to say guided in some sense by the deeper wisdom of what Jung called the self with a capital S. That there's some part of us that has access to this deeper wisdom and that it, it, is, it is ensuring that we're moving along our trajectory towards growth. Mm -hmm. So that even problems in parenting, you know, I suppose I'll say, you know, within reason um, can be, you know, difficulties that we're having or struggles that we're having can, can be, can, we can understand them as part of a natural process towards growth. And, and by the way, just because there's a problem doesn't mean there's a problem. It's sort of like I said before with depression. I mean, you, you said, you know, you, you wouldn't want to terrorize your children. Well, terrorizing would be bad. But, but actually, the ways in which we um, fail our children can be important in some sense. I mean, Winnicott talks about this, that a good enough mother is not perfect, if you're too perfect, your child doesn't learn the ability to self-regulate or self-soothe. So it's actually important that we not be perfect. It's important that our child has something to struggle against. But, but even on a deeper level, there is a way that the, the self is present in all things. Even when it looks quite disastrous, there can be a trust that we're moving toward wholeness 
and that our, our child is on his or her own path toward wholeness. Mm, so much in what you just said. Mm. See, what question do I want to go to? I think I'll go back to the beginning of what you said about the psyche working towards wholeness, moving towards wholeness. I think it's also important that we recognize the brilliance of the nervous system and the ancestral gift of hundreds of thousands of years of resilience, of dealing with everything from climate change to war to burning at the stake, all the, that's all in the nervous system. Yes. And that when, to, to say another part, when you have these difficulties, as you said, or challenges, that's going to relate to those dissociated parts that are frozen in our body that is a really good thing because they're protecting us because we would faint or freeze or, mm-hmm. or miss life completely. So in a sense, our nervous system, whatever challenge it seems that we would have, whether it's motherhood or anything in life, mm-hmm. when we come up against that, that's always a portal for the wholeness and to recognize that life wants to live through us and yes. the nervous system is, is protecting us. It's our friend. Yes. Well, and, and you're talking about the nervous system and I, and I, and I'm hearing Jung's language of the instincts, right? I mean, I think they're, uh, yeah, yeah. they're basically the same thing. So, you know, I just had the pleasure of reading the most beautiful paper written by a colleague. And unfortunately, I hadn't read it. I don't think she'd written it while I was working on the book. Otherwise, I certainly would have included it. But she, um, she, she experienced a psychosis during her pregnancy, and she had the good fortune to wind up with a, a Jungian analyst, a very famous Jungian analyst named Harry Wilmer, who has passed away now. But, you know, he wasn't going to hospitalize her or put her on medication. He respected the wisdom of the nervous system and saw in these psychotic symptoms the psyche's effort to heal itself in preparation for the arrival of her son into the world. Mm. So they're, they're, they worked with dreams and they worked with some of the images from the psychotic process and, uh, and helped just helped that process along of kind of knitting up this safe cocoon for, for the baby that was coming and also for her own psychic development. Mm. Wow. Another thought that came up from what you were saying was this, how raising children can re-trigger our own trauma from mm-hmm. earlier times. Sure. I don't know your background. That's what happened in my, my experience was re-triggering and not knowing how to deal with that. Now I would deal with it with a completely different way, but there's patterns in those suppressed parts. And as we're looking at mothering in particular, as a evolutionary process of whole towards wholeness, what would you say how people can begin to see those re-triggering patterns and actually 
bring awareness to me. The awareness is what the healing is not sure, but bringing Mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. How can we be more uh, aware when we're totally traumatized by a two-year-old and a four-year-old or a three-year-old or whatever? Well, uh, Yes. And what I, one of the things I would say is that ex- re-experiencing the trauma, uh, you know, as we parent is also an opportunity mm-hmm. because we have a new chance to, um, to come to terms with it, to make meaning of it, to integrate it in some way. I mean, I think exactly what you're saying, and there's this, there needs to be this space between, um, sort of the stimulus and our reaction to it. And we're always, I mean, that's really what therapy is, I think, is we're looking to find that space. And when we find that space, then we can observe it. And we may still be distressed by it, but then we have it instead of it having us. Mm-hmm. So it's that it's that ability to develop a kind of um, uh, reflective capacity, mm-hmm. which takes time. And, you know, there's no kind of, magic way to do that some of some of it just takes time and building up ego strength and that sort of thing but you know uh, yeah one of the things that i do in the book is i use fairy tales to illustrate these these different things and and there are actually two tales that i don't use in the book but that kind of speak to this um uh, this sort of re-triggering of trauma there's a, an american fairy tale called the witches which um, has these two children who've kind of been left by their parents and there's, there's, there's nothing, there's very little food. And when the parents are gone, the witches come and the children are, are kind of left to their own devices. And eventually they're, they're saved by the dogs, but you, you can see this kind of intergenerational transmission of trauma that the, the parents, you know, had very little and didn't have a lot of resources. And then the, the children kind of fall prey to the, the witches. Um, but then there's this other American fairy tale called Wiley and the Hairy Man. And Wiley's a, a boy and his father was taken and eaten by the hairy man. And when the hairy man comes for Wiley, Wiley's mother is able to help him um, trick the hairy man. So there we have like a sort of a successful, okay, the traumas come back, but, um, but the, the mother has developed that reflective capacity. She's not overwhelmed by the, in the original trauma. And she and her son bring about this happy resolution where the hairy man is decisively defeated because they're able to trick him three times. <laughs> and there comes the word Wiley. I love it. I never knew. Yeah, That's probably that's... the origin of that word. <laughs> yeah. Wiley Coyote. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to go back just a bit because you said something I think is super important. I just want to underscore it. When you're talking about that space of choice between the triggering and the reaction or the mm-hmm. response. Yeah. And there's that gap, you know, I think it was um, Viktor Frankl that said between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space, the world, you know, I can't yeah. remember his exact words, yes. the, the meaning, but there are practices. Meditation, for instance, is a practice. Being in nature is a practice. What are some of the practices you would recommend for mothers? I, I get a sense that fairy tales could be an amazing teaching tool. I I never thought of it until I was thinking about what you were doing. 
Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I think that any reflective work can be helpful in that way. And um, fairy tales are a deep font of wisdom of, again, a kind of a distillation of this instinctual wisdom that we've been talking about that's contained in the body, but there it is in these beautiful images. Mm-hmm. So when, when we read a fairy tale and, and we are thinking about it contemplatively and kind of let, we don't even have to understand it or interpret it. You know, it kind of works on us and it helps us. I mean, really what fairy tales are, are images of psychological patterns. So by reading fairy tales, we are integrating these patterns and then we can see ourselves in them, which helps create that space. I also think that, um, uh, you know, dream work can can act in a in a can be tremendously powerful. Actually, it can be very helpful in creating that reflective capacity, that space. And I do use dreams throughout the book as well. Yeah, yeah. Talk about the thirteenth fairy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I I do um, I do talk about the. Uh, that is such a rich image. I, I do use that um, that fairy tale in the book. I mean, the the book is real. The, the the fairy tale. So this the fairy tale is Sleeping Sleeping Beauty, obviously, and uh, you know the fairy tale is really about her parents' desire to keep out that which would wound her. Uh, so right from the beginning, they want to keep the bad thing out. And that, that thing initially is the 13th fairy. So there are things that we don't want to let in. And of course, young again, refer to this as shadow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that this is an incredibly <sighs> potent image for many of today's parents, because we're living during this time when mothers, and I include myself in this absolutely, tend to do this really intensive parenting where we're trying very, very hard to enrich our children's lives and to protect them from harm. So Sleeping Beauty is a real fairy tale for our time in that sense. And what winds up happening is, you know, when when you don't invite the 13th fairy, what does she do? Well, she comes and she curses your child. It's like that which you don't deal with will, uh, you know, it gets banished to the woods of the unconscious, but it doesn't go away. It just picks up steam it, and it kind of becomes wild and untamed and looks quite dangerous. So we have to be careful what we repress, if you will, because what we repress will, will uh, just pick up more energy. And uh, so, so that's what happens. You know, Sleeping Beauty lives with this curse on her head that she's going to prick her uh, finger on a spindle on her 15th birthday. And, you know, the, the king and the queen, they say, well, we're going to get rid of every spindle. And isn't that what we try to do as parents? We, we're going to, I mean, that's the, sort of a great metaphor for, for what do they call them? The snowplow parents, that we're going to remove every obstacle from our child's life so that he or she will have an easy time. And I think a lot of parents are doing this. But what what you wind up doing is setting your child up for exactly that wounding that you're trying to avoid. Because Sleeping Beauty has never seen a spindle before. So when she sees one, she's really fascinated by it. She's really drawn to it. And um, 
that is indeed what happens, right? Our, our kids can kind of become very thin skinned if they don't face these challenges early in life. And then when they, they see it, they're drawn to it partly because we have an innate desire, an innate unconscious need to self-initiate, to be initiated. And if the culture is not going to initiate us, we will do, many of us, dangerous things in order to have that initiatory experience, to be broken open so that we can find the story that we were meant to live in the world. Yeah. And, you know, Sleeping Beauty goes and she finds the old woman spinning in the tower. And what is that but an image of a confrontation with one's destiny, with one's fate? Mm-hmm. You know, this, the fates in mythology were spinners and weavers. They were spinning the fate of each man's life. And so their beauty is in the tower and she meets her fate. And, you know, probably because of how uh, coddled and cosseted she was, the reaction is she falls asleep. She goes unconscious. There's no, there's no life, but, but it's only for a while. It's a, for a long while. It's for a hundred years, but eventually she wakes up to her princely qualities and then she can, can live out her happily ever after. Uh, I love that. Beautiful. You know, this thing about making it so nothing's going to happen to my child, you know, it's, there's one thing to put locks on the poisons and things like that, but you know, to try to do what you just talked about. I, I the, the image I got, Lisa, was spraying your entire house with disinfectant so there's no germs, so the person's immune system is completely weak when it actually goes out into the world. Well, I mean, this is true, both biologically and also psychologically. Just a couple of other examples. You know, um, when I was growing up, it was very rare for, for kids to have peanut allergies. But then, of course, uh, sometime recently, and I don't have a good handle on the dates, but when my kids were little, it was all like, oh, you know, peanuts, peanuts, be careful about peanuts. Well, they have pretty decisively determined, I believe, that kids developed a greater peanut sensitivity because we weren't feeding them peanuts. <laughs> The kids kids that were exposed to peanuts were less likely to develop peanut allergies. And I'll I'll give you just another kind of psychological example. By the way, scientists recently built a biodome and there were, there were, you know, there's like, I don't know, all kinds of plant life and animal life in it, but it was totally encased and these trees grew and they grew up, but as soon as they got to a full height, they collapsed why? Because they had never had to stand firm in the wind. Mm-hmm. And it was being exposed to the wind that, made the, that makes trees be able to stand tall. So you don't want to remove the wind. So psychologically, um, there is some research that shows that um, uh, parents who um, engage in what they call parental, parental challenging behaviors – so, so that the research started because the researchers assumed that if kids had sort of a frightening experience in childhood, like, uh, you know, um, they f- fell from a tree or something, that they would have more anxiety as later in life. What they found was the exact opposite. Kids who had had challenging experiences were protected against anxiety. So, and and it included things like parents who kind of 
gently teased their kid or played scary games with your kid? I mean, you said you didn't want to terrorize your kids, but a little terrorizing might be a good thing. So, you know, games where you, um, you know, pretend you're the monster and you chase them and they, they run away screaming and you get them, you get them just to that point where they're, they're a little too scared, you know, and, and then you stop. Or um, when you play games with them, you don't let them win all the time. You, you let them lose and you let them get upset or you encourage them to manage their own uh, difficult social situations. You know, they're, they're having a problem with a friend. You, you don't intervene except maybe to say, well, why don't you, know, why don't you approach your friend and try this? Mm-hmm. So, so kind of pushing our kids to do frightening or difficult things uh, to, to tackle fears, to um, stretch themselves, winds up being protective against anxiety. So your disinfectant metaphor is a really good one. We need to build up their psychic immune systems by not coddling and cosseting. Yeah, great suggestions. I love it. A couple things I wanted to talk about. Let's see. First one is about experts and listening to experts as as a parent, as a mother. We give our power away so often. I was born up in the era of Spock, Dr. Spock. Mm -hmm. Let the children cry it out, which has caused so much trauma for so many, not only children, but mothers who have to sit there and listen to a screaming, frantic child talk about how we give our power away versus listening to our inner wisdom. Well, I'm, I'm very much on that page. And, you know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about with instincts, that you're going to have instincts as you parent. And that goes for when your kid's a newborn all the way up to when, you know, she's an adult, you're going to have instincts and they might go against what the experts say, but, you know, you're the expert on your child. And I think that one of the things about motherhood that allows it to be such a growth opportunity is because it does encourage us to get in touch with our instincts. And we often see as we're mothering that what we do by instinct works. So it gives us more confidence in our instincts and our intuition. And so, you know, it can be a wonderful way to gain trust in ourselves and that's part of what makes it a, a tremendous growth opportunity, I think, for women. And trust in yourselves is a teaching for your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Then you're passing that along too. Yeah. Right. I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jungian analyst Lisa Marciano, and she has a new book coming out called Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, which comes out towards the end of the month, I think. Yes. Yes. May 25th. Oh, wonderful. And you can probably pre-order that on Amazon if you like. You, you absolutely can, yeah. and you should. <laughs> so a couple things I'd like to address. One is the teen years and one is initiation, which they mm-hmm. often go together. So mm, yes, uh, can you address those issues? Yes. As I said before, I think we all have an inborn drive to be initiated. And if life doesn't give us opportunities, we will often seek them out. And that, I think, partly explains why teens often do difficult, extreme, frightening things is because an initiation is anything that tests you, that cracks you open, that um, 
exposes you to a, a sort of at least metaphorical life and death situation. It often feels like a part of us dies, um, even if it's just, you know, the old me, I'm, I'm, I'm different now. And, and it lets us know that we, it lets us know what we're made of. It helps us find the story that we came into the world to tell. Uh, so um, I, I do think that we need to help teens find their way to initiate. We need to either offer that if we are able to, or at least support them as they find it in healthy ways. Because if they don't find it in healthy ways, they may look for it in unhealthy ways. I think that, you know, the focus of my book is really on the psychological growth of the mother. So it's not a book about how to parent. But I will say that the teen years are hard and they're another time when we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. And it is often when our child is going out in the world and doing dangerous or frightening things. And we have to come to terms with that at some point. I, I don't think I don't think that it's right to do this in the early teen years, but at some point when our child is an adult, we have to release him or her to their fate. And that enables us to continue to grow. You know, you were talking about Sleeping Beauty before. One of the things that happens in that tale and Sleeping Beauty pricking her, she's 15, she pricks her finger on the spindle. That is an initiation. She seeks it out. It's not just Sleeping Beauty who goes to sleep. It's the entire castle. It's her parents as well. And I think it shows that when we try too hard to protect our children from their fate, from their destiny, we will stop growing as well. So uh, creating these, creating or allowing these opportunities for adolescent initiation is part of our journey as well. And another part of the mother initiation is the empty nester, which you are, are I believe you're now at that place, aren't you? Uh, soon. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that phenomena because there's a big hole all of a sudden mm -hmm. uh, in your life. Well, and I do, I do talk about and that in the in the book as well because I I think that um, there are many times. Well, the context in which I mention it in the book is the way that our sense of time shifts when we have children. So when they're tiny, they just grow so fast. I think we're so aware both of how, you know, the minutes drag, but the, the years fly, <laughs> you know, and, and then, and it's certainly true. It, you know, it can, it, when, when you have little children, a day can take forever, but then you're like, Oh my God, they're growing up so fast. Mm -hmm. So we have this different sense of time. And then when they leave home, uh, you know, we have this tremendous sense of loss and we have a real, I think for many of us confrontation with our own mortality I mean, certainly, you know, being middle-aged and seeing your kids leave home is different than just being middle-aged. You have a real sense of finality, of how fast the, the present is flowing into the future. And, and it's, it's, there's grieving to be done. There's mourning to be done, both for the, you know, the child who's left us that we may feel ter terribly sad about, but also for this stage of our lives that is drawing to a close. But I think that the opportunity here is when we can embrace this, when we can embrace the loss and the finitude 
and even the implied mortality that comes with the stage, we have an opportunity to come into a renewed relationship with the infinite because it's in relating to finitude that we recognize that which is infinite. So it, it's, it can be a spiritually deepening experience to face the empty nest. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about that. I, I wanted to save this part to the last here to really talk about the, the spiritual journey of motherhood. It is a spiritual journey and it has particular points along the road, developing and finding the big S as Jung would call it. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about your experience and, and what that means to the infinitude. I'd love that you use that word. It's a favorite word, but that mm-hmm. sense of being moving from separate, you know, I'm separate in a world of separation. My children are separate, They, but they bring me to a kind of connectedness. Mm-hmm. And then there's this larger connectedness that the world that's available to override the myth of separation that is at the heart of all suffering, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so Jung said that we live in two, always live in two worlds, the world of our everyday senses and, and a world that's eternal. And most of the time we're only from aware of the former. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful Polynesian expression that Joseph Campbell talks about uh, that kind of mirrors what Jung said. And it's um, uh, hunting for minnows, standing on the back of a whale. Mm. So we go through our days and we've got to pick up the dry cleaning and we've got to remember to pay the bills. And, you know, there's a soccer game at 3.30 and, you know, who who forgot his homework at the home or whatever. That's the minnows. We spend most of our life chasing, hunting minnows. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse of the fact that we're standing on the whale. And that is the transpersonal ground of being. And it's an, an awesome thing to, to catch a glimpse of that. It's really numinous and awe-inspiring and even perhaps frightening. One of the stories that I think really captures this for me is this ancient uh, Hindu legend um, uh, that, that has to do with uh, Krishna. So Krishna, when he was a little boy, there are all these beautiful stories about the baby Krishna. When he was a little boy, his uh, mother was a milkmaid named Yashoda. And um, this, this beautiful story goes that one day, uh, uh, Krishna's older brother, Krishna was like a little toddler. Krishna's older brother says, mom, Krishna's eating dirt. So Yashoda goes over to what's in your mouth? Open your mouth. Let me see your mouth. So he opens his mouth. And in that moment, she sees the entire cosmos in his mouth. And she's just, she's just, and the language in this, in the tale is just beautiful. She sees, you know, everything that has been, everything that will be, she sees all of creation in his mouth and she's just overcome. And then he kind of, you know, cause he's Krishna, he sort of, you know, makes her forget that. And the ordinary moment is back. And she, all she knows is that her heart is filled with love for him. And I just think that is so beautiful. And, and 
and really maps on to what it's like to spend your days, especially with little kids, because most of the time, man, are you hunting for minnows? You know, you got to find the you got to find that like little piece of Playmobil that someone lost. And then you have to help little people get their socks and shoes on so that you can get out of house on time to go to the doctor's appointment. I mean, it's just tons and tons and tons of little tasks. And the first time I read that story, I, uh, my son was, he was, he was a little toddler and he, he put things in his mouth all the time. <laughs> so I was always saying, what's in your mouth, open your mouth. And he would sometimes say teeth. <laughs> um, so I, I really related to that story, you know, that you can just be in these ordinary moments and then something happens. You know, you look at your child and you're so struck by, you know, his, his beauty or um, he says something incredibly poignant or you, you realize, oh my gosh, they're growing up so fast. These little moments where you're just kind of, you leave the ordinary moment and you're in a different space. You're in a you're in the, the space of the eternal, even if it's just for a second. So it, yeah, I, I just love that that the extraordinary actually lives in the ordinary music yes. in the ordinary moment. That pay attention. It, it says to me, pay attention. And I think that's that whole thing of being attentive is so important as mm -hmm, as, a, mm -hmm. as a parent and as a mother. Yeah. And it will come find you uh, when you least expect it, those, mm. those sacred moments. Mm. Lisa Marciana, it's just such a delight. I wish we had a few more hours to chat, <laughs> but it's been so delightful. And thank you for joining us on this Mother Day, Mother's Day special. Well, I hope everyone out there has a wonderful Mother's Day. Yeah. Thank you. Much love to you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.